For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. The unsurpassed, profound, and wondrous Dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Now I can see and hear it, accept and maintain it. May I unfold the meaning of the Tathagata's truth. Good morning, everyone, and welcome. Um, looks like some of the people aren't back yet, but uh, or maybe I just can't see you. Anyway, welcome. Um, for those for the the new people, I'm Taigen Layton, the uh, guiding Dharma teacher at Ancient Dragon Zen Gate. Welcome, and I'm very happy to have uh, giving a talk this morning. Zenshin Florence Kaplow. Uh, many of you um, know her because she's been uh, she's spoken regularly at Ancient Dragons and Gate. But for new people, um, can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Um, so for new people, uh, Florence is a priest in the San Francisco Zen Center lineage. She's also a Unitarian Universalist minister uh, and a minister at the. Champaign, Illinois Church, uh, Unitarian Universalist. Uh, Florence is also a professional, uh, very experienced environmentalist and activist. And she's also co-editor of a wonderful, important book called The Hidden Lamp, which is a chronicle of uh, fine women Zen teachers and practitioners going back to Buddhist time through India and Tibet and China and Korea and Vietnam and Japan and even America, I think, um, with, with um, wonderful commentaries by modern uh, women Zen teachers. So uh, Hidden Lamp, is a hi- I highly recommend. Anyway, Florence has spoken here uh, many times um, regularly. Uh, and I'm really, really happy to have you um, giving our last Sunday talk of the year. So welcome, Florence. Thank you for coming. Well, hello, everyone, again, or for the first time. It's wonderful to be with you again. I hope you all had a good Christmas, whatever that might mean for you. <laughs> or solstice, uh, or, or whatever the important holiday is for you at this time of year. Uh, some of us may be a, a bit tired after whatever activities might have gone on this weekend. I am I am thinking that this will be a little bit of a shorter talk, just because of that uh, the energy that may have been expended over over the last couple of days. I know that's been true for me. Ah, so it's good to be with you again, and it and it does sound like there may be some people who are here for the first time. And part of what I'll this is actually a, a kind of part one of a two part talk. The next time I'll be speaking is 
uh, Monday, January 3rd, I believe. And uh, it brackets uh, New Year's. So part of what I'll be talking about today and then again on January are different different aspects of uh, kind of um, the turning of the year. And if some of you are new, then maybe this is part of the the turning in your life in some way to engage here. So uh, very welcome and um, glad that you could see what this is about. I know that there's some uh, poignancy for this sangha that you had moved from a long time of being online, very long time, as have has been true of uh, many, many um, religious and spiritual communities during this time as a, as a way of really, really taking care of each other and of the wider world and of the revered teachers that, uh, that serve. And so, and of course, with the, with the new variant, that kind of shifts things back again. And I know that there is sadness and poignancy in that shift. And uh, may it be brief, but we don't know. (laughs) There's so much we don't know, as we are finding out over and over again. This morning is also a poignant moment for me in my life. I have been serving this particular Unitarian Universalist Church in Champaign-Urbana for the last four and a half years. And through the wonders of modern technology, uh, uh, pre-recorded words uh, will be happening uh, during our live stream. It's also virtual here still or again. <laughs> and uh, those words are words of uh, thank you and farewell, because I am leaving this position as of January 3rd. So the next time I talk to you will be literally my last day with this congregation. Uh, due to health issues, I have found that um, diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis and the way it's affecting my energy just doesn't make it possible for me to serve in a, in a really uh, challenging lead minister role. So as I speak to you, I will be saying goodbye. And that is uh, part of the theme of this, of this talk is, is poignancy and transience. And I also want to say on the other side of this, that one of the things that I've been looking at in my life uh, right now are where joy arises in my life. And if any of you have ever dealt with chronic illness, you know that uh, joy can be kind of uh, a few and far between experience. So it feels particularly important to pay attention and and honor and even uh, nourish moments of joy. And what I noticed as I was preparing this talk and knowing that I would be with you again is that I felt a very spontaneous upwelling of joy. So I want to thank uh, Taigen Sensei and the Sangha for inviting me to be back to speak to you again 
to give me an opportunity to experience joy, even at this moment of poignancy. I love sharing the Dharma. I love actually any opportunity to, to engage with others who are on this path. And so uh, many thanks, many thanks. What I, uh, as I said, what I, what I want to, to explore with you today, and this may be a familiar term to some of you and not so familiar to others, it's kind of always true of a Dharma talk. There's always a range of previous understandings. So for those of you who are already very familiar with lots of ideas from Japanese and Buddhist culture. Uh, <laughs> hopefully, there you will glean something new today. But what I want to talk about is a very, very important term in uh, Japanese aesthetics and how it ties in with our Buddhist understandings and Zen understandings and uh, how it ties in with our lives at one of these hinge moments of the year on this side of the beginning of a new year. So this term is mono no aware. Uh, mono no aware. And I think in some ways this is a an untranslatable term. I think that this is always true between one language and another that there are there are terms or words in one language that are so deeply embedded in the worldview of that people that bringing it over into English only, only captures uh, facets of, of what it means. And I, I'm pretty sure this is one of, those, one of those terms. I'll give you some of the translations that are offered. The bittersweet poignancy of things. Uh, aware, which is the third part of that phrase, means, again, again, remember, this is being translated from one culture to a very different culture and language. Uh, pathos, poignancy, deep feeling, sensitivity, which I think is kind of interesting, or awareness actually. It's funny, aware and awareness sound very similar. And uh, the, um, uh, the other actual term that I have a feeling might come closest <laughs> to, to, how to how to translate this into English is simply ah, A-H, ah. So one way, and, and uh, mono is things, things of the world. So one way that mono no aware has frequently been translated is the ahness of things, life and love. Ah. So it's this awareness of the transience of things, and, but not just that not just that side, but the heightened appreciation of the beauty of those very things as they are changing and the gentle sadness at their passing. 
one of the, I mean, the first novel recognized as a novel in any language anywhere, as far as we know, was written in the 11th century in Japan by a woman, a noble woman uh, in the Han court, whose name was Murasaki uh, Shikibu. And in this novel, this term is used more than a thousand times. That gives you any sense of its importance in Japanese culture. And it's often very much also, it's tied to relationships, but also to the natural world. So for instance, the cherry blossoms in the spring and the way that they, and we have this experience here. If you think, think about spring in the Midwest, it seems to take forever to arrive. I'm always kind of surprised in early April. Oh, it's really not here yet. And then it, it just comes on like a dream, seemingly overnight, and everything is blooming. The, the plums and the cherries and then uh, the red buds, the dogwoods, the magnolias. There's this kind of wonderful march of flowers, but just for a few weeks. And then they begin to fall. And I think one of the differences between Japanese culture and ours is that we appreciate that moment of full bloom. And they recognize that one of perhaps the most beautiful moment is not the moment of full bloom, but the moment when the blossoms begin to fall. If you've ever been in a big grove of flowering cherry trees, when the blossoms fall, especially if it's a windy day, we have a Japanese cultural center, just a few easy walk from my house. And it has a long allay of uh, Japanese cherry trees. And at the moments when they begin to fall, and if the wind is blowing, it's like being in a pink and white snowstorm. And so that moment, the moment that the cherry blossoms fall. And then again in the, in, in the autumn, when the maple leaves turn red, and we, we have a pretty spectacular show here. I live in a neighborhood with many old shade trees, and when they turn color, it is dazzling. And uh, this year was particularly wonderful for whatever reason. It just seemed to go on forever. I was so grateful because, again, it's often a week long and then it's done. But it went on and on this year, much to my joy. And in Japan, they have, of course, the many, many varieties of Japanese maple trees, some of which can turn just the most extraordinary shade of scarlet. And others are yellow or orange or purple. And people take time off work to go out and see uh, these maple leaves as they turn. And you can feel the, the poignancy in that. It's the turn towards winter. It's the last uh, spectacular moments of color before the grays and browns and whites of winter. 
So we, we experience this too. Uh, and we can understand as the seasons shift. Um, and we can, we can actually increase and develop our sense of appreciation of this mono no oware. And as I said, there is one of the things that I'm aware of whenever encountering Asian culture is that it is permeated, truly permeated with Buddhist teachings. You know, we're, we're Buddhist converts, I think, uh, uh, probably all of us, maybe all of us here on this Zoom call, we're converts and we're as converts, often converts are very dedicated and enthusiastic, and there's all kinds of advantages to being a convert. But we don't know what it means to be born into a culture where the teachings permeate that culture. And that's true throughout Asia. And it's an important thing to remember if we ever think that somehow our way is better <laughs> than the way of uh, the say, some of the immigrant community and how they practice Buddhism, the Vietnamese temples, the Japanese churches, the various ways that Asian Buddhism continues in America. So uh, I think this is where we can see this, that, that there are uh, deep Buddhist understandings that inform something that is really central to Japanese culture and aesthetics. From the very earliest time of the Buddha, uh, the Buddha recognized and spoke deeply about what he called the three marks of existence, the three uh, primary characteristics of existence. Anicca, this is um, in, in Pali, the original language where the Buddhist teachings were written down, anicca, dukkha, and anatta. So anicca is the full understanding that everything is changing, that everything changes without exception, and that the nature of life is that uh, things come and go. There is life and there is death. There is uh, birth. There is loss. And that this is the nature. It's the nature of the world. It's the nature of our lives. And yet uh, we so often avert our eyes from this truth, uh, which is not... Um, I think part of the reason we avert our eyes is that we think that Anicca is bad news. We think about Anicca, the loss of a loved one, for instance, and the pain that that engenders. But of course, Anicca is also the birth of a child. It's, it's the moment that the leaves fall from the trees in the, in the autumn and the moment that the life force of the trees produces new flowers in the spring. That's all Anicca. And it's not just the, the big moments that are Anicca, but literally moment to moment. My words from two minutes ago are gone. They have already happened. They have passed. They're, they might be resonating in your mind 
they might be moving out in some mysterious way across across the universe as sound waves, but but the moment of their speaking is gone. And this is what makes music so powerful. Because if you think about it, music is only music in its movement from moment to moment. That um, there's no such thing (laughs) as a note that isn't occurring in time. That what makes music is is the passage of those sound waves across time, and they're coming and going. So that's all a Nietzsche. And yet we run from it. We hide from it. We don't, we don't want to look a Nietzsche in the face. And it's, it's because of that and because of all our strategies <laughs> of uh, trying to hold on uh, that the second mark of existence uh, arises so strongly in our lives, which is dukkha the teaching of, of suffering and that uh, in our holding on and pushing away in our various strategies around Anicca, uh, we cause suffering for ourselves and others. We cause stress and dis-ease. And then, and maybe this will be a, another talk at some point, but the final mark of existence, anatta, is uh, often translated as no self, so that uh, that understanding is that although we seem like, and it's all related, it all goes back, I think it all goes back to uh, Anicca, the impermanence, that we think we're this kind of solid, unchanging, I don't know what, little little thing that that is somehow... Um, not subject to birth and death. But of course, our nature is also a nature of ceaseless change and also uh, utter interdependence and connection. So there's nothing truly separate or solid uh, to be found anywhere, including in us or in what we think is us. So that's Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta the three great marks of existence. So again, just to remember that um, Anicca means that which we lose, but also means healing and change from what is difficult. New Year's is a really good time to reflect on Anicca as uh, one year ends and the other begins, whatever that means, since it's a it's an arbitrary moment in the year. It's happening all the time. New Year's is actually happening all the time. But in the spirit of mono no oware, one way to practice an awareness of anicca, of impermanence, is to realize to really let in fully. This is not, these are not ideas. This is, <laughs> the Buddha is very clear. This is the nature of reality. And given that, given the preciousness of our lives, given the shortness of our lives, to really use our life to uh, fully 
and as deeply as we can realize the preciousness of the people and world around us. This is Mono no Oware. Just this morning, as I was preparing for this talk, I, I was looking at my email and I uh, something appeared in my inbox that I wanted to share with you because it was so extraordinarily relevant to this talk. This is from a, a um, kind of weekly email digest called The Marginalian. <laughs> Uh, and uh, that a woman named Marina Popova collects. And this morning, what came into my inbox was uh, a, a review of a book called 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman. Uh, 4, 000, the whole title is 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. You might think, oh, no, not another book about time management. But no, this is an entirely different approach <laughs> to time management. 4,000 weeks is about what uh, we have in a lifetime, in an average lifetime. Just think about that for a moment. 4,000 weeks. On the one hand, 4,000 is a kind of big number, but on the other hand, it's not really very long at all. And depending on how old you are and depending on how long your life will be, maybe a significant number of those weeks have already passed. So this book um, is a it is a, um, I'll just read a little of what she says about it. It's, this is a sanctuary, this book, for from our self-brutalizing war on the constraints of reality. That is a great quote. Our self-brutalizing war on the constraints of reality. It's exactly what the Buddha was saying. The constraints of reality are about the nature of things, the nature of impermanence. And we we're at war with it, and we're at war with our own experience. Uh, so um, here's a quote from the book that I, I think um, you might relate to. Denying reality never works, though. It may provide some immediate relief because it allows you to go on thinking that at some point in the future, you might at last feel totally in control but it can't ever bring the sense that you're doing enough, that you are enough, because it defines enough as a kind of limitless control that no human can attain. Instead, the endless struggle leads to more anxiety and a less fulfilling life. The more you try to manage your time with the goal of achieving a feeling of total control and freedom from the inevitable constraints of being human, the more stressful, empty, and frustrating life gets. But the more you confront the facts of finitude instead of impermanence and work with them rather than against them, the more meaningful and joyful life becomes. 
So out of the mysteries of the inbox came that, uh, that offering. Many years ago, when I was uh, almost completely new to Buddhism myself, I was in my early 20s. I was going through the grief of the loss of a, oh, and speaking of impermanence, the sun has now come out and is absolutely <laughs> blinding me. <laughs> but it's lovely to see. Thank you, sun. Uh, that uh, I was going through the grief of the uh, breakup, my first big breakup. Maybe you all remember one of those. And someone gave me, or I came came to it through a friend, uh, a book called Who Dies by Stephen Levine, who was a student of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, the great teacher around death and dying, and also a uh, meditation teacher. And Stephen Levine was a, was a wise soul in many ways. And really, what I'm talking about today is a lot of what he taught throughout his life and through uh, very intimate uh, connections with uh, people who are dying and also people in deep grief. And this book was, was really a turning point in my life and really uh, an inspiration to begin to practice because I, I think I'd been waiting all my life up until that point for someone who would tell me uh, really honestly about how things were in life, how I could already see they were and and how to practice with that. And he told a story in that book that was the, I, I kind of think of it as the pivotal koan of my life. Uh, and I've never forgotten this story. It comes back to me again and again, and I'm going to share it with you today. Again, some of you might have heard it, but if you haven't, uh, Maybe it will touch you too. And if you have, maybe it will touch you in a new way. So the story is about Achan Shah. Achan Shah was a great Thai meditation teacher. And uh, he was giving a, a talk to a group of students and a number of uh, Western uh, insight meditation, Vipassana teachers, I think might have been present at this talk, because I've, I've heard the ver different versions of this story over the years. Anyway, he was giving a talk one day and he held up and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to hold up a cup instead of a, instead of a glass, but the original story is a glass, but I'll tell it as a cup. So here's my cup. This is a really lovely cup. And this cup was uh, made by a, a local potter here in Champaign-Urbana. And Achan Jaw said, you see this cup? For me, this cup is already broken. I enjoy it. I drink out of it. It holds my tea admirably, sometimes even reflecting the sun. If I should tap it, it has a lovely ring to it. But when I put this cup on the shelf and the wind knocks it over or my elbow brushes it off the table and it falls to the ground and shatters, I say, of course, when I understand that the cup is already broken 
when the glass is already broken, every moment with it is precious. I had a very direct experience of this not long ago. Uh, my older sister, I'm just going to move the, well, okay, I'll just keep being in the light and enjoying the sunlight. Um, my older sister is a uh, amateur but very serious ceramicist uh, who's been making hand-building pots and uh, bowls for many years. And she worked, she is especially gifted, I think, uh, with her glazes. And she had made, and, and in, in her style of pottery, the outside is unglazed, but the inside of the bowl are these beautiful, uh, beautiful glazes. And she had made me a bowl and given it to me not long ago, within the last year, that I just found absolutely exquisite. And I, I, I make whisk green tea, matcha, and I would drink my tea, whisk my tea and drink this beautiful green tea out of this bowl um, that had this gorgeous green glaze inside it. And it was very light. Uh, some of her bowls are kind of heavy because they are hand built, but this one was very thin and very light. And it was just, it was exquisite to uh, drink tea from it. And I have two cats, two young cats, both of them just a little over a year old. And they're not always the best behaved cats on the planet in the nature of being a cat. And um, they, uh, my black cat jumped up on the kitchen counter where that bowl was. And before I could even react, it was on the ground and it was in pieces. And I'll, I'll show you. Uh, I'm actually going to show you. Let's see if you can see this there. That's that's one of the pieces <laughs> that with the beautiful blue-green glaze. I have, a, I have several pieces here. I keep the pieces because I, um, I like to, uh, I'll put them in the bottom of a, of a flower pot next spring. But it was in way too many pieces for me to be able to uh, glue it back together. And it's always a shock when something breaks that's precious. Uh, I can't even believe that it's happened and that there's no way to go back and to that moment before it broke. And yet, as Achan Chah says, right, this, this beautiful bowl was already broken, really, in a way, before my sister even made it. And then also, as she made it, and as she thought of me, and as she sent it, and as I drank tea from it, and as I washed it, and as I placed it on that counter that morning, and as the cat sent it flying, and as it crashed to the floor. There's a kind of happy ending to the story, which is that I told my sister about what had happened. <laughs> and for Christmas, she sent me not one, but three <laughs> new bowls. Of course, I have to admit, none of them quite measure up to this one that broke. <laughs> but they're beautiful. They are the same glaze. And maybe maybe uh, you've heard of the term, uh, also Japanese term, also um, somewhat untranslatable, of kintsugi. 
those of you who love ceramics are probably quite familiar with this, although it's being used as a metaphor a lot these days, more and more, it seems. So in Japan, the, the making of tea bowls is an ancient art, one of the great Japanese arts. Um, years ago, I was in, I was um, um, visiting Japan um, and um, I went to the museum of the Raku family. Do you all know Raku? You know Raku fan, uh, pottery, right? You know, we've all seen Raku Raku pots or Raku uh, bowls uh, that are made. And Raku in America refer, refers to a particular way of firing that's a kind of wild firing in a way, not using a kiln, but usually um, they're often fired outdoors. And anyway, I didn't realize that Raku is the name of a, of a great uh, potting, pottery making family. Um, and it's a very small museum, but it has, uh, it has tea bowls going back. Oh gosh, maybe 800 years, something like that. Maybe more all from the same family, the Raku family. And each bowl is named. So maybe, and it's a unique name for that bowl. So maybe it's, um snow falling moonlight or uh spring um clouds or whatever 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 the name of the bowl is and you and you can go from each one is in a glass case and you can go from one to the other and see these beautiful bowls so kintsugi is a is a way in Japan that if one of a, a great tea bowl breaks, so it's not just done with, with anything that might break. It's something really precious and significant. It is uh, mended, but it's mended with gold. So you see all the cracks. When we mend things, generally, like if I had had any possibility of mending this beautiful bowl from my sister, I would have tried to mend it in a way that you didn't see any of the cracks, right? But in the Kintsugi tradition, uh, you actually mend so that the cracks are shining and apparent uh, with this gold. And... I've heard, although I don't know if this is really true or not, that kintsugi bowls are even considered even more precious, even more valuable than the unbroken bowl that was there before. So I feel like this has something to say about mono no oare too, right? Because it's a tragedy. I mean, can you imagine one of these 600-year-old bowls made by the 22nd generation of the Raku family. And it's being used in a tea ceremony and someone slips and it breaks. This, this whole history, everything that this bowl represents and every way that it has touched human lives over centuries. And then 
each of those pieces is really carefully gathered up and stitched back together with gold. So uh, I just offer you that as a metaphor. If, if by any chance your life might be feeling broken right now, that the brokenness itself can be beautiful, can be precious. Ah, so that's, that's, uh, I wanted to share that, that way of thinking about impermanence as well. And as far as I can tell, all the Japanese arts, which all have their foundation really in, in Zen, or at least are deeply affected by Zen teachings, have this quality of mono no oware. So when you see, go to an Asian art museum and see screens or pottery or um, any, of the, any of the arts, go to a kabuki play, look for this, look for this quality. See if you too can see how it how it permeates. So one of the great Japanese arts that is definitely um, affected by Zen is the art of haiku, of uh, haiku poetry. And um, haiku is meant the in, the whole intention of haiku is to capture the ephemeral spirit of a moment in only a very few words. And there are uh, three elements in traditional Japanese haiku that are important. Um, Kiru, which is the juxtaposition of two images or ideas, sometimes in very surprising ways. More, which are the number of syllables. And Kigo, which is a reference to a season. And I just learned this morning that haiku recognizes five seasons instead of four. Now, the Japanese can actually, there are versions of Japanese seasons that are myriad, (laughs) but like us, they recognize four uh, primary seasons, spring, summer, fall, and winter. But haiku also recognizes another season, which is the season of New Year's the season that we are entering right now. And this season of New Year's uh, really is a recognition of both endings and beginnings. I wanted to share some haiku with you this morning by my very favorite haiku poet. And I've I can't even pretend to be a, a, either a, a, a serious student or reader of haiku, but I've, I've loved haiku in my way. And it wasn't until I found the haiku of this poet that haiku really, really spoke to me. Uh, and this poet is, uh, or was, she has passed away now, uh, Mitsu Suzuki who was Suzuki Roshi's wife, second wife, and widow for many years after he died. She died at uh, either 100 or 101, might have been 101, not too long ago. And uh, Mitsu Suzuki was born in Japan uh, and came to America uh, to be with 
Suzuki Roshi, who is the founder of San Francisco Zen Center and the the author of Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, perhaps the most the best-selling Zen book of all time in America. And she did not begin to write haiku until her husband was diagnosed with cancer. And somebody suggested that it might be a helpful practice for her as she faced this loss and this version of transience. And for the rest of her life, which was a very long life after he died, he died in the early 70s. And again, she lived until fairly recently. She continued the practice of haiku. And I think the reason that I responded so strongly to her haiku, maybe in some ways it's not entirely traditional because it it seems to have an element of uh, relationship and feeling that maybe just to my Western heart is uh, stronger than in a lot of haiku poetry. Uh, or I don't know. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because in a way she's family, because that's my lineage, the San Francisco Zen Center lineage. But anyway, I love her poetry. And there are two books um, that she that were collected um, of her poetry. And one is called Temple Dusk Zen Haiku. This one's pretty hard to find. It came at Parallax Press, published it quite a long time ago, 1992. And then a really beautiful book called A White Tea Bowl, A Hundred Haiku from a Hundred Years of Life. And uh, this one is particularly precious to me. Um, in, uh, in fact, it's, it's signed by the people who worked on it uh, because uh, a friend of mine was the, the reason it happened and the, and the primary person who worked on it. Um, Kate, who is um, Kate McCandless, who is a Zen priest and uh, Dharma sister of mine in Vancouver, British Columbia, uh, and also Kaz Tanahashi, who is one of my favorite people on the planet. He just turned 88. Uh, he is a peace activist and calligrapher and poet and translator and teacher, wonderful human being. And uh, this book came about because uh, Kate and some other people from my kind of uh, extended sangha traveled to Japan in 2010, I think, and met with Mitsu Suzuki, who at that point had moved. She lived at San Francisco Zen Center for many years, for at least, uh, I think, about 20 years after her husband died and taught tea ceremony and... um, was just this, and I'm hoping at the end of my talk, I asked Taigen to maybe say a few words about his encounters with her. There's also very good stories about her at the at the end of this book. Uh, but then she went back to Japan to be with her family. And her family takes care of the temple, Rinso Inn, that is the, the family temple that Suzuki Roshi left to come to America. And her son and grandson are priests there. And uh, and she continued uh, doing haiku. It says in this book somewhere, I couldn't find the quote today, but I think she did 4,000 haiku after she returned to Japan. So that's a little bit about Mitsu Suzuki. 
And when, I guess one of the things that I love about her poetry is a number of them actually reference her, her continued uh, mono no oare, grief and gentle sadness around the loss of her love of Suzuki Roshi. I wanted to read you some uh, winter haiku. If you come back on the third, I'll probably read you some, some New Year's haiku as well. But this is, this is an example of, of um, the feeling that I, I receive from her haiku and her honesty, her, her emotional honesty and vulnerability. Winter night, longing for company, anyone at all. I'll read each one twice. Winter night, longing for company anyone at all. So for those of you who might not know, this is a rakasu. This next poem I'm going to read refers to a rakasu. It's a, it's a kind of traveling robe that um, lay practitioners and Zen priests wear. This was written winter 1979 in San Francisco, about seven years after Suzuki Roshi had died. On my husband's ash urn, I hang his rakasu, winter's first rain. And if you've ever lived in California, you know that actually the rains of winter are are a beginning. They are when the grass turns green again after the long, dry, hot summer. On my husband's ash urn, I hang his rakasu, winter's first rain. Here's one from winter 1986 from San Francisco. Clear winter day, sound of waves, solitary life. Actually, I just found another one that I hadn't noticed earlier when I was choosing poetry to share with you. This is on, it's on the facing page, also winter 1986. Very appropriate for this weekend. Buddhists also cheerful. Christmas Eve grows late. Buddhists also cheerful. Christmas Eve grows late. See if there's any others I wanted to share with you. Two more here. This is one that really, really moves me. To be of benefit to others, my heart's firm vow, cold winter morning. To be of benefit to others, my heart's firm vow, cold winter morning. 
And then this last one, which just, I don't know, it just always moves me nearly to tears when I read it. No limit to kindness. Winter violets. No limit to kindness. Winter violets. And in case you think that this theme might only be something that Japanese poets can express, that last poem made me think of a famous contemporary poem by a Palestinian American writer and poet who's also connected to San Francisco Zen Center, although well known far outside Zen circles. And this is a poem entitled Kindness. I'm going to read a couple of stanzas of it to you. And again, listen, listen for Mono no Oare. Before you know what kindness is, really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved. All this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to gaze at bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, It is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. There is on, then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. And as Mitsu Suzuki said, No limit to kindness. Winter violets. You know, as I've been in this time of saying farewell to the beloved people of this congregation that I've served. And it was very, it was very scary to contemplate doing this, even though I, I needed to do it for my own health and well-being, because I love them. And I'm going to miss them. And I won't be, I might run into them on the street, but I'm in a completely different relationship with them than I was as their minister. And they, in turn, have been so extraordinarily kind to me, so supportive 
I am, my house is filled with cards of well-wishing and of gratitude and appreciation. And, you know, sometimes in this four and a half years, I didn't know if I was appreciated or if I was making any difference in people's lives. Sometimes it's only when something is about to be lost that we can express these things. So I urge you, if there are people in your life that you appreciate, don't wait until they're about to go away, whether that's moving across the country or dying, to tell them. Because it's really filled my heart. It has made this leaving process uh, sweeter and uh, more filled with love to know what it's meant to them to have me be in their lives. Kindness. So now I want to shift a little bit and talk a little bit about New Year's and the preparation for New Year's that um, if you care to, you could explore some of these practices this week. And just to be aware as we come into New Year's of um, a way of approaching it. As I'm sure many of you know, uh, the Lunar New Year is what is celebrated in uh, most of most of Asia, which is uh, much closer to the spring equinox. Um, so really kind of the beginning of spring. But when Japan began to westernize during the Meiji era in the late 19th century, it shifted to a Western calendar. And so the Japanese celebrate New Year at the same time that we do on, on December 31st and January 1st. However, it still carries uh, many, many of the ancient traditions that come from Shinto and from Buddhism. And uh, it is a true turning of the year. It is, it is like our Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving, and every other holiday all rolled up into one in Japan. And people take off time from work and they go home to their families uh, that they, where they might have come from. And New Year's also celebrated in Zen centers. I don't know what uh, Ancient Dragon did with New Year's uh, before everything was closed down, but I certainly had a few New Year's at Green Gulch Farm Zen Center, which is part of San Francisco Zen Center uh, when I lived there. And uh, one of the things that I wanted to suggest to you, I think I'm going to try to do it as part of preparation for New Year in Japan but also at, at Zen temples. So Soji is the uh, way in Zen temples that we clean with mindfulness and awareness as a, as a daily practice. Often right after morning Zazen, everybody goes around and cleans and straightens and rakes and sweeps. Uh, so in Preparation for New Year's, people all over Japan, not just in the temples, do what's called um, osoji, which is big cleaning. Oh, is big or great, great cleaning. And people clean up their houses and apartments uh, to brush out the old and welcome the new. And I think this is a really beautiful practice uh, to think about cleaning not as this 
thing that has to be done or this thing to impress your family who's going to be coming over because you wouldn't want them to see the big mess you've been living in, but actually to clear out the energies of the old and allow the energies of the new year to enter in. So you could see if you um, want to explore that. And then uh, one of the, one of the ways that's expressed at, at, uh, at least at San Francisco Zen Center. So the monks, uh, there's a, a daily attendance to Zazen that's taken and these attendance records are kept all through the year. And if you're missing a lot of Zazen, somebody's probably going to come talk with you. So one of the things they do at Green Gulch is they have a big bonfire and they burn all the attendance records so that you can start over for the new year. And one of the things I do uh, is um, I make little cards for when people die and I put those on my altar for 49 days. And at the new year, I, I burn those cards, truly releasing from the previous year, releasing everyone uh, into the sky. And um, people sit all night and uh, there's 108 bells at midnight. It's, uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful way to celebrate the new year. People sleep in the zendo. Anyway, I wanted to share one of... Uh, one of Mitsu Suzuki's poems that actually is relevant to this um, kind of year. Ah, relevant to New Year's uh, cleaning up. Uh, oh, I have two of them, actually. Let's see if I can find the other one. Here it is. I thought this was really lovely. Pleasure of organizing small drawers, year's end. Pleasure of organizing small drawers, year's end. And then this one. Every year, simpler and quieter. Preparation for the new year. That's winter 1987 in San Francisco. Every year, simpler and quieter preparation for the new year. Between now and when we meet again, of course, we will cross over that uh, new year line. You too could sit in your own house if you wanted until midnight. Imagine 108 great bells ringing. And then just to give you a little foretaste for the, the other side of New Year's, there's this appreciation in Japan of the first of everything that comes up after the New Year, the first time for everything. And I'll just close with a, a, a poem by a great, a truly great Japanese woman poet and Buddhist nun of the 18th century, Chioni. And this is a poem that she wrote for the new year. It's play for the cranes flying up to the clouds, the year's first sunrise. But you could also wake up and greet the year's first sunrise. And on the third, when I speak to you again, I'll be talking about joyful intention. There's a um, 
I just want to wish you a happy new year in Japanese, which is, and I apologize if I'm mangling the pronunciation. Yo i otoshio. Yo i otoshio. Happy New Year's. Thank you. Florence, thank you so very much for a lovely, heartwarming talk. Um, and we have time for discussion, comments, questions, responses for Florence. But first, she asked me to say a little bit about uh, Oksan, is what we called her, Mitsu Suzuki Sensei, uh, when she was living at San Francisco Zen Center. And I was living there in the winters of 86 and 87, uh, in, in which a few of the haiku um, that Florence read ha- were, were written. But we called her Oksan, which means wife, because she was Suzuki Roshi's wife. So that was what we all called her. But um, uh, she was also, amongst many other things, a, a tea teacher, a teacher of sado, uh, what we call tea ceremony. <clears throat> and I took classes with her for a little while. I couldn't continue because I can't sit seiza because of an injured knee. But um, she was very strict. She was a very strict teacher. Um, but there was a sweetness to it, too. Um, but she, you know, the the way to actually get people to follow the ritual and ceremony of sado of the way of tea is to really train people. And she did that very strictly, but she was also very sweet. Um, uh, I remember aside from formal tea ceremony, having tea with her just in her kitchen informally. And it was very lovely. Um, And the other thing that I'll share is that she used to do her morning exercise and she would walk around the halls of, the second, the second floor where she lived of San Francisco Zen Center and swing her arms widely <laughs> like this as she walked. And this was her exercise. Anyway, she was very sweet. And she, I think it was about 25 years after Suzuki Roshi's death that she stayed at San Francisco Zen Center and really was a kind of matriarch, mother to all of us. So thank you for sharing her wonderful haiku. And, uh, if anyone has responses or questions or comments uh, for Florence and her talk, um, you can feel free to raise your hand, or if you're not visible on screen, you can go to the uh, participants window on the bottom, and there's a function at the bottom where you can raise hands. And um, and and uh, David Ray, would you help me call on people? But David Weiner already is, has his hands up. So, David. Oh, and I just want, I want to add that also, if any, you don't have to ask a question. If you, if you want to just offer something about your own relationship with impermanence or like something that you intend to do or is a tradition for you to do during New Year, um, feel free that as well. Thank you. David Weiner. And you're muted. Talk about mindfulness. (laughs) Um, I lived in Japan for 11 years, and so a lot of what you said resonated with me, uh, very much so. Um, And the ringing of the eight bells. And I don't know what the characters is when you say mono aware. Uh, 
what the character is for a ware, but right away I think of Japan and how they always say ware, ware, which means us. You know, mm. that we're separate, we're all one. Um, you know, there's a phrase in, in Japanese, the ware, ware, nihonjin, you know, we Japanese. And it was a, a, a kind of combination. And uh, I really appreciated the stories you send. The one thing that I would ask you, if possible, if, you know, some of the books you you uh, mentioned, um, if somehow you could send a list of those to to uh, to the Zen Center, to Saigon, and that he would share those, because there's some of those I would like to, to uh, pursue. So, but thank you very much for a wonderful, wonderful talk. And um, one thing about Sakura, you know, the uh, Japanese uh, flowers, uh, cherry blossoms in the spring. The reason why it's so beautiful is because everybody knows it's not going to last. And that's one of the, one of the reasons for going is to take, take a look at this before it's gone. And especially in samurai culture and the, the Budo, it's you're ready to give your life for your Lord. So your life is like a cherry blossom. It is mm-hmm. ready, ready to be given away in the fall, fall away like the, like the, the blossoms of the cherry tree. Thank you for sharing that. I love that connection to the samurai culture. I wasn't aware of that. Makes mm-hmm. sense, though. You know, like being ready to die at any moment. I would add about Sakura uh, and, and Suzuki Roshi. The first time I went to Rinso Inn, which is Suzuki Roshi's home temple, uh, Oksana was still living in San Francisco, but uh, uh, it was the time of Sakura. And I uh, sat up late with Hoichi Suzuki Roshi, uh, Shumi Suzuki Roshi's son, and his wife and son were also there. And we watched on television because like that, like we have weather reports here in the United States, they have reports of where the sakura are blooming because it moves along from west to east in Japan. So we watched the, uh, <laughs> and, and there was a big storm. And uh, anyway, it was, it was fun to watch the, the uh, cherry blossom bloom, blooming move through Japan. Other uh, Responses. Yes, David Ray. Thank you so much for that talk. I feel so uplifted by it. Um, um, I, I recently ordered a bunch of new incense, and I happened to use cherry blossom today for the first time in a very long time. So I've been breathing a cherry blossom fragrance as you were talking, and it's it's, it's so wonderful. I, I do have a question, and it's about um, something like... <sighs> The resilience and emotional maturity that it takes to have the attitude, uh, <laughs> the attitude of, of, of appreciating, you know, aesthetically and also as, as a practitioner, appreciating the impermanence um, of things. And, you know, and, and it, it, in addition to sorrow, there's the other way of, you know, bec- uh, uh, sort of trauma response, hardening or numbing um, of, of the heart. And uh, I'm somebody like I think very many people. When I when I when I first came to to this practice in in this temple, I was dealing with a with a, a life transition that I that I was sorrowing and spending a lot of time, you know, praying to an image of of Kanzeon and you know begging for things to be other than the way they were, and they're not the other than the way they are. They're the way they are. And um, so so I, I'd I'd love to hear 
I mean, and I'm sure that, that this is this is probably currency that you deal in all the time. I'm sure you're 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 often talking to people who who aren't feeling that that resilience and emotional maturity that allows them to appreciate a, a moment of something breaking like a, like a like a haiku poem. Well, thank you, David. I, that's a great question. And also, the other David, I just put the two three books in the chat in case you want to go see them there. I think you're absolutely right. I think that's an incredibly important point because what if we're not like gently sorrowing? What if we're kicking and screaming and begging for things to be different? And then we add on top of that a judgment because we've maybe we've been, we heard a talk like this, right? (laughs) And then we're like a judgment of ourselves for not being spiritually mature enough to be able to accept the impermanence of our lives, right? Then we're just increasing our suffering. We're not actually uh, reducing it. And when you were talking, I, I was reminded of a, it's an old koan about a, a Zen master who's dying. And of course, there's lots of, there's all these death poems of Zen masters where they're sitting in Zazen as they die and they're saying something extraordinarily wise and accepting. But this particular Zen master was groaning and screaming uh, in the pain and, and sorrow of his dying. And his students were appalled and asked him, you know, how come you're, I thought we thought you were enlightened. Why are you making all this noise while you're dying and not just accepting it? And he's like, well, there's this too, right? There's this too. Uh, And actually one of my favorite koans from the hidden lamp is the one about the woman who is considered had been certified as enlightened by Hakuin, a lay woman. And when her granddaughter died, she was weeping and a monk or a, a neighbor comes by and said, I, I, very similar. I thought you were enlightened. What, you know, why are you weeping? And she says, my tears are better for my granddaughter than actually she says, Oh, you bald headed old fool. Uh, My tears are better for my granddaughter than all the incense and flowers and candles in the world. So our tears are actually an offering, right? Um, And I'll just say, I was, I was struck by this when you said this, that there was a time in my life, actually, I was living at Green Gulch, although I'd been around Zen for a while, um, and I was grieving the loss of my marriage, and I could not sit. It was too painful. And actually, Linda Ruth, uh, uh, Linda Ruth Cutts, who's a teacher at Zen Center, suggested to me that I do a bowing practice, where I just bowed and to Kuan Yin and, and chanted and asked for help. And that was all I did, really. So... Yeah, there are things that there's no way we're going to peacefully and maturely accept what's happening. And I think then, then that's the practice of compassion for ourselves and and for the situation that has brought us there. I think, I think self-compassion is a very powerful practice as well. So thanks for asking that. And maybe I'll just add, I think it's another that kind of that koan kind of suggests this. There's another kind of acceptance that's the acceptance of our kicking and screaming. Right? That's that's also acceptance.
Go. I was very touched by that question and answer and um, just want to link it back to the denial of reality. If, if that's what's rising, that's what's rising. And if, if you have an idea of who you should be, that's the same thing as the denial of reality of the three um, realities where we yeah truths. Thank you. Yes. Anyone care to share how they, maybe either um, traditions other than like going out and getting drunk, which is not really much of a possibility right now anyway, of New Year's uh, in your life or family or something that you are wanting to explore as a way of um, honoring the turning of the year? Blake. Yeah, hi. So I actually don't have a comment on that front. I actually have a question that I've been thinking about a little bit with the bowls that um, become broken and mended with gold. I, I guess I've been thinking about if it could be seen in another way as like, in a way, resisting the transiency of the bowl mm -hmm. to like mm -hmm. try to fix it in this way. But I also could see why that might be a little nitpicky because it's also turning the bowl into something that's beautiful again. So I guess I was kind of wondering if maybe if it could be seen as resisting in a way or like what the, I don't know, I guess I'm thinking if there's like a line that's kind of, you know, this is resisting and this is turning it into something that's new and beautiful again. Well, I think that's a good point. I mean, so I think one of the shadow sides uh, and, and again, I'm not, I, I, I didn't live in Japan for years. I've spent time there and I appreciate aspects of the culture, but there, there can be, and, and our Western way of understanding it, we might be sort of even more prone to this, that it could be, there's this shadow side of kind of preciousness, right? Like these beautiful things and these kind of precious traditions and all that. And, and we can get attached to that preciousness and, and, uh, you know, these famous tea bowls, right? Well, maybe just let it break. Um, I, th I think, I think, I think you're onto something. I, I could, I think, I think either way, you know, there, there are different ways of working with the situation, but it would be worth looking at, you know, am I, what is my degree of attachment here to something precious? It's just a tea bowl after all. Yeah. Another aspect of this might be attachment to non-attachment, which is something that's warned against by many uh, Zen teachers through the, through the years that we can feel like, oh, I can't be attached to anything. So the story that you told, the two stories you told about uh, someone weeping at some uh, 
at, at death or at some passing or some tragedy is a way of expressing that, that uh, it's okay that we have these attachments, but not to, but uh, I think not to get caught up in trying to control, to feel what we feel and, uh, and let go, whether it's attachment or non-attachment. Anyway, just a thought. Well, and I, I think about, I mean, it certainly um, has happened a fair amount in my life where people I know who don't know much about Buddhism think that it's about a kind of cool non-feeling. And I'm always like, no, it's quite the opposite. And, uh, you know, one of my very favorite, again, back to the Hidden Lamp, one of my favorite um, commentaries in the Hidden Lamp is by Blanche Hartman, who is the first, she's the first woman abbot of, abbess of a uh, Western uh, Zen monastery, as far as I know. And she, uh, one of the things she said is, you know, we're not, we don't become kind of like withered trees on a cold rock. We are every, she said, every, you know, Suzuki Roshi, Katagiri, every, every Zen teacher I knew was so full of life and, and um, full of laughter and, and joy and, and feeling, deep feeling. And I, I think that's part of the reason I, I like these haiku is that I kind of, I feel like um, Mitsu Suzuki was not afraid to feel and to, to write about her feeling. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that's a really great point. And it, and I think sometimes we're attracted to Zen practice or to Buddhist practice because we think it might save us from our feelings. And I, I hate to tell you this, but actually I've always said, I feel like especially practice in kind of retreat practice or Sashin is actually a practice of courage because Every feeling <laughs> that you've just about ever had is probably going to come up at some point when you sit in silence in that way. And so um, it's kind of the opposite of not feeling. And I think it makes us softer and kinder, right? I love that, Naomi. She have nigh. This is the way to kindness through, through sorrow, through feeling. Other comments, responses, offerings? We have time for one or two more. Please feel free. I'm going to hop on again just um, because I've, I've recently learned that resentment means to feel again. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think that that's the feeling that we want to drop. It's the ruminating. It's the bringing it up again and again. Instead of feeling it fresh, either like in, in, in Sashin when it comes up from the old times because it hasn't been fully felt, but it's filling it completely so you can go on again fresh, which again is part of the new year. Ko, can you introduce our, uh, us to the small child that is who is in your yes. arms? Oh my goodness gracious. This is Maya and she, she napped through uh, the second half of your talk. I wrestled her during the first half and... Um, <laughs> And uh, yeah, she enjoyed your teachings also. Oh, hello, Maya. (laughs) Hello, hello. (laughs) Speaking of new life. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Thank you. And constant change. And constant change. Anybody who's had a small child knows. (laughs) 